1: Happy birthday, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. You know, this is Michael. The uh, Well, it's either yesterday or today is the summer solstice, which means my birthday actually falls on the longest day of the year. How exciting.
0: Don't you ever wait for the longest day of the year and then it just passes you by?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, when it's your birthday, you kind of get up and are a little more excited about things. So I feel like I've been pretty anxious today. And I'll tell you what, I'm, actually, I'm pretty excited today, too, because the one thing I've been wanting for my birthday...
0: What it was the one thing you wanted.
1: Talk a little bit more about equity literacy. I feel like that I feel like every birthday up till now that's been the thing missing.
0: <laughs> I really hope that somehow we can, you know, fix that.
1: You know what? Luckily we I think we have somebody with us today who is going to be able to help fill in the gap that's always been missing on my birthdays. And uh um it's Paul Gorski, who is going to talk a little bit. And I know about Paul Gorski's work because I use uh, one of his articles in my class about the myths that often uh, exist about students who live in poverty. or, or And so he, he does some really good work, and so I'm excited to learn from him. Good. Paul Gorski, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: I'm right, doing good. It's great to be here with you guys.
1: We're
0: absolutely thrilled to have you on, you know – Dan's birthday, so. I feel
2: like I should sing happy birthday, but believe me, nobody wants to hear that.
0: <laughs> Paul, how did you, um, can you tell us a bit about your background in education? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my background's
2: actually in activism. I came into education through doing uh, sort of more community activism. and uh, There sort of comes a point as an activist where you think, well, if I want to do things like live indoors and eat meals, I better figure out how to parlay this into a, into some kind of job. So, uh, <laughs> I, so I kind of consciously chose education as uh, the way to uh, do that. So, I mean, I've worked a little bit in the public school system as an equity specialist, but uh, mostly my work has been uh, in teacher education and uh, trying to, prepare teachers to think about issues like racism and poverty and heterosexism and that sort of thing.
1: Can you tell us, Paul, what you mean by equity? I know that um, sometimes people use the word equality, some people use the word equity. What do you see as being the difference between those terms and why do you choose equity?
2: Well, I, I sort of see equality as sort of sameness. So give everybody the same thing. The problem, of course, is if people start with different levels of access and opportunity, Giving everybody the same thing just recreates the unequal access and opportunity. Equity is about seeing how access and opportunity are distributed unequally, and uh, redistributing access and opportunity to be more uh, to be more fair, more more just.
1: My favorite part of that answer, which our our viewers can't see, is that. Your cat literally had its tail right in your face as you gave it. And you <laughs> did not hesitate at all. That was great. That was impressive. <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> so what else have you done in kind of what is the type of work you do with teacher educators? What types of th- does your job consist of? And has it changed over time?
2: Uh, it's definitely changed over time. I think, I think uh, like a lot of people, when I first got into uh, teacher education around issues of equity, I was doing a lot more kind of the diversity 101 stuff, the interpersonal uh, stuff, uh, uh, the sort of just focus on reflecting on my own bias stuff. And it's and it shifted a lot to working more around, working more closely with people who already have a sense of commitment to educational equity. And uh, how do we move toward deepening our understanding and our knowledge and our skills? Uh, to to uh, be able to provide some leadership around uh, equity and social justice, so it's more sort of the I used to start with a twenty percent of most resistant people, and now I see my focus as the twenty percent of most engaged people.
1: That's that's really interesting. I think it's um, it is an, to to think about issues of social justice. I think the a commitment to it is is kind of has to be there right for to achieve anything to move towards anything, so it 's interesting to to focus on people who want to do that because i 'm sure there could be a lot of time spent um, that could feel you just aren 't making any progress on issues if you 're having to convince everyone of this, but let people decide who want to do it to come along for the ride right
2: yeah, absolutely I, and part of what I started noticing working with schools and districts is that the the problem really isn't that there are a lack of people who care about diversity or a lack of initiatives related to diversity. Uh, the problem is that a lot of the people who care about diversity don't understand the problems we're trying to solve deeply enough. And so what we end up with is a lot of multicultural food festivals and taco night mm-hmm. and... Uh, multicultural arts and crafts fairs, and very little racial justice, economic justice. Uh, And and so my work is really about how do we make that shift from doing sort of the fluffier kind of diversity to uh, more actual equity work.
1: So you're saying eating a food from a culture is not going to solve our uh, issues in our culturally pluralistic society, huh?
2: Hey, I like the international food fair as much as anybody else. So I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have that. What I'm arguing is that is not anti-racism. That's just got nothing to do with equity. So it's not that we shouldn't do that, but we shouldn't do that uh, as a replacement for more serious equity work.
1: Well, so can you tell us specifically about your big idea, which is equity literacy? And we've broken down equity a little bit, but could you tell us what you mean by the term overall?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Equity literacy, I see as the, uh, the knowledge and skills required to make myself a threat to the existence of inequity within my sphere of influence. Uh, so again, that's more than cultural knowledge. It takes more than knowing a little bit about this culture and a little bit about that culture. It actually takes the ability to, uh, to even just be able to recognize inequities. And and that's the first big problem is that so many inequities exist that well-intended people just are kind of socialized not to see. Uh, And uh, so equity literacy is first just being able to see it, being able to name it. uh, And then, uh, you know, like I'll give you an example of this. A lot of schools have these fundraisers uh, led by the PTA or the PTO where they're asking students to sell bad chocolate or to sell ugly candles or to sell something to raise money for the school and and my question is, is there anybody at that school who can stand up and say you know what, the uh, this is humiliating to low-income students because their families can't afford to buy a box of bad chocolate. And people in their community can't afford to pay for ugly candles. And so this is a sort of a setup for low-income kids. And, but, you know, those kinds of things probably happen in 80% of schools. And so the first step of equity literacy is just being able to look at that and say, wait a second, this is crazy. This is this is inequitable. And that's an example of sometimes people trying to actually raise money to do things to help lower income kids, but doing it in ways that are actually oppressive to low income kids. So equity literacy sort of starts at being able to see the difference, being able to recognize those sorts of things so that we can work more authentically for uh, equity.
1: What are what are some other issues or, or problems you see with that that people have you know, trouble identifying you, that's a, that's a great example of fundraisers, having fundraisers in a community where, you know, students are putting in work where maybe they would, um, they need that time to go do actual work and make actual money, you know, whereas in kind of a suburban school, of course, that model makes more sense because the students don't have to go and work to help supplement family incomes and things like that. What other types of issues do we sometimes not recognize in schools?
2: You know, I'm thinking, still thinking about class and poverty issues, but the, the, one of the other things that pops into my mind is that so many of the initiatives and strategies related to uh, addressing the uh, educational outcome disparities between, say, middle class students and lower income students, or uh, students whose home language is English and uh, English language learners. A lot of that focuses on coming up with strategies to try to convince ELL families or low-income families or African-American families or whoever it is that they ought to care more about their kids' education. And so there'll be these assemblies, let's get all the parents in the, in the uh, auditorium and then we'll lecture them about how important yeah. it is to care about their kids' education. But again, this is a mistake because research has shown since the 1970s that basically everybody cares a lot about education. There's no discernible difference between how uh, ELL families care about education or other families, low-income families, wealthier families. There's no distinction. By just not having the equity literacy to to recognize the the problem, I make a couple of mistakes. One is I spend a bunch of resources trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Low-income parents don't care about education. That's a problem that doesn't exist. The second mistake I make is I, I've just alienated the most marginalized families in the school by defining the problem around what's wrong with low-income people. That's kind of like what I was talking about in the Myth of the Culture of Poverty article, uh, rather than looking at the actual reasons why uh, outcome disparities exist, which is unequal distribution of access and and opportunity. And so... Uh, not only does it take us off track, but it also masks what the actual issues are uh, so that we can never actually solve the issues. And and that's why it's so critical just to learn how to see the things that I'm conditioned not to see.
0: What suggestions do you have for school districts that are are trying to make make their school district more equitable?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. The the first suggestion I have, and I, I know this sounds like kind of Uh, the inverse of what you're asking me. But the the first suggestion I have is that we have to focus first on consciousness and understanding. We can't solve a problem that we don't understand. And that's the problem right now. The problem is everybody wants to jump straight to practical solutions, but they're coming up with practical solutions based on misunderstandings of the problem. So the first most practical thing is learning to understand what the actual uh, problems are. Uh, are and why they exist. And that's why it's so critical to move away from Ruby Payne sort of uh, approach to this. Secondly, it's about making sure that we're focusing not on fixing marginalized people, but on fixing the conditions within our schools that marginalize people. So I can't fix the the educational outcome gap across class by fixing low-income people. I have to really do a policy analysis Look at the sorts of policies that exist in my school that actually punish low-income students for basically the symptoms of being low-income people uh, and uh, work on uh, addressing those policies. I have to make sure that good curriculum and effective pedagogy is equally distributed so that we don't have the wealthiest kids and the whitest kids and the highest achieving kids getting the most effective pedagogy and the most marginalized kids getting the most boring, rote, uh, direct instruction kind of pedagogy, which is basically what we have in schools right now. So those are the things that come to mind
1: immediately. And so I think you see a lot of these issues come out in issues of tracking within schools where students seem to be whether, you know, conscious decisions are made or they're unconsciously made about putting students on uh, some students in advanced honors class, baccalaureate program, um, or they're put in, you know, uh, classes that are seen as on level or normal or whatever. And looking at those types of issues in school, two things I'd like to um, clarify that you brought up first. um, I think Ruby Payne serves as a good example. Um, You you mentioned her name for people who don't know. Could you tell us a little bit about Ruby Payne and her influence and kind of why some of the things she does is a little problematic? Uh,
2: well, <laughs> my biggest uh, experience with Ruby Payne was having her uh, lawyers threaten to sue me uh, for defamation for being critical of her uh, framework. But uh, R- Ruby, <laughs> Ruby wow. Payne is sort of the. Uh, her work around poverty and class, her book called A Framework for Understanding Pover- Poverty is probably. Still the most popular uh, framework or professional development framework that's used to uh, to prepare teachers to work with uh, low-income students. And the, the major problem with, I mean, there's a lot of problems with the framework, but the major problem is that uh, it's based on this, this uh, idea called the culture of poverty that uh, was debunked in the 1970s. Uh, but the culture of poverty is is basically the idea that, uh, that we can make assumptions about people who are in poverty because they're in poverty. And then what we need to do to fix outcome disparities is eliminate uh, the culture of poverty so that people who are experiencing poverty can behave more like uh, middle-class people. So it's really sort of a deficit lens. It's... This sort of classic, well, we don't have to actually fix the, the education system or we don't have to actually fix policy and practice within an individual school to be more equitable and just for low income people. What we need to do is fix low income people. Uh, uh, and and that's sort of the, the Ruby Payne approach.
1: Which I think an important part of that is in education, you know, when we talk about having um, research based, you know, uh, Uh, informed uh, policies and curriculum and things like that, that's where we have to look at what research tells us about these types of issues, about poverty, about other things like that. And uh, that's one big problem I've had with Ruby Payne. She's very resistant to peer review type research and, and critiques, which we everyone's research should be subject to critique in education, um, every approach. But I think the important point you made is, is really shifting from that deficit perspective where we look at students and look at what they can't do or look at what we perceive to be problems with them or their cultures or other things like that and start to, I know a lot of people have advocated moving towards more of an asset perspective where we um, you know, look at the, the what Luis Moles called the funds of knowledge from their communities, from other places like that, um, do you have any suggestions about how we can reframe and you know, emphasize assets instead of deficits of our students? Well,
2: I think the first step for that is to really understand the uh, outcome disparities through a more structural perspective, even if I can't fix the big structural problems. So just to give you an example, what if every student in every school in the U.S. had access to high-quality health care? How much of a difference would just that one thing make in outcome disparities? Or what if every family, had a, a, every working age adult had access to one, living, to, to one living wage job? How much of a difference would just that one change make? And so part of the problem with the deficit perspective is it sort of hides those realities. Those are probably the two things that, that would make the biggest impact on outcome disparities. Now, I know average fourth-grade teacher, that's a little bit outside their sphere of influence. But even the policy and practice that I adopt in my school could be responsive to that. Think about how we do family engagement. Do we do family engagement in ways that consider that uh, low-income people are less likely to have jobs that have paid leave, they're less likely to have access to uh, childcare. They're less likely to have access to transportation. They're less likely, you know, it's not that I as a teacher or school administrator has to buy every family a car. But if I don't have this structural understanding about why these things exist, it's very easy for me to keep doing things the way that I've always done them and then blame low-income people for not being able to achieve in the system that's basically set up to ensure that they don't have the same access and opportunity as, as other people. Uh, so again, I, I know we want to hear the five practical strategies, but really right. the, really the most practical strategy and the thing that we're most missing is understanding the root of the problem. Once we understand the root of the problem, the practical strategies are easy. It's like, oh, well, maybe we need to rethink how we do family involvement, so we can make sure that it's accessible to people who don't have transportation and can't afford childcare and don't have paid leave, and people who experience school themselves as a hostile environment. Maybe we need to. Uh, it, then it becomes obvious with a more structural view. You know, maybe we need to look at our policies and see how our policies might actually punish. Students who are experiencing poverty for things that are the outcomes of their poverty, like like policies about uh, where students are actually getting suspended because they are tardy to school three days over the course of a you know half a school year, so because their parents don't have transportation or because they had to go to the doctor with their parents. Or whatever it is, and so the practical strategies come through the the, the the deeper level of
0: understanding. One of the things that I found interesting in your article was talking about the curricular changes. Do you mind talking more about that? Uh,
2: there are some sort of practical pedagogical and curricular strategies that research has shown to be uh, to, to to be effective. Uh, one of them is to actually talk about. Uh, to talk about poverty and class as as part of the curriculum, uh, or across race to to actually talk about race and racism as part of the curriculum or or, or uh, part of the pedagogy, so that that could look a couple of different ways. One that could be things like teaching about someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who was an economic justice warrior as much as he was a racial justice warrior. But it's also about having people look at their own communities and see what's going on and who's doing the important work in their communities and what are the human rights issues in their own communities. And and I know it's easy for someone like a social justice education or critical education person like myself to advocate for that. But the truth is, I talk about it uh, in that article. I also talk about it in in one of my books. The, the truth is that research actually shows that uh, students, marginalized students become more engaged uh, and, uh, and do better in school when we do those sorts of things. And, and so, uh, so there are actual practical strategies that, that can benefit uh, the, the achievement of, of marginalized students.
1: And I think there is a lot of uh, good work out there. You know, Howard Zinn obviously has made a lot of inroads in that realm by bringing up perspectives that are often not, um, you know, included in curriculum. Rethinking schools has provided some good resources. And I think the 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 thing I hear over and over from people who are doing good work like you, Paul, is is that we have to look at the narratives. For example, we're both social studies people, have social studies backgrounds. What are the narratives that exist, and how do we? you know, kind of deconstruct those and make sure they're not centered on just like a mainstream, middle-class kind of white narrative about history, but that we allow other voices and discussions and complex versions of those to come out. Um, You know, a a previous episode, I think I've referenced it like three or four times now, haven't I, Uh, Michael? Four times now. I know. When LeGarrett we talked about black history, and he talked about the complexity of black history, that there are multiple perspectives um, that are you know, uh, being portrayed and we need to kind of delve into those in complex ways.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think you named some of the best resources for that. I think another good resource for that, uh, that has sort of become better is, uh, teaching tolerance. Mm -hmm. Today's, today's teaching tolerance is not, you know, 20 years ago, teaching tolerance. They're doing much better, uh, things now too. I, in fact, they even had an article, uh, challenging uh, Ruby Payne in one of their recent uh, magazines. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's not just about including those narratives. It's also about which narrative we put in the center of the conversation. Because it's not adequate to keep that traditional uh, white-centric, heterocentric, male-centric narrative in the center and then just add a couple other narratives onto it. It's really about how do we upset the master narrative and then replace it with a more sort of inclusive people-based
1: narrative. I think, you know, we you've really helped us delve into so many so many different things today. Can you tell us where we can find you you online? I mean, if you have places where people can connect with you online whether it's Twitter, Facebook, other spaces, email. And then where can we find your work? Do you have any recommendations for new things you've written or projects you're working on? Where can we find Paul Gorsky's stuff?
2: Uh, Absolutely. Well, uh, just doing a Google search uh, for me (laughs) is a start, but uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, My sort of central organizational web page is called EdChange. The letter's E-D and the word change at change.org. And uh, if, if you go there and then click on the publications tab. Virtually everything I've ever written is is there. All all my articles are there uh, for people to access for free. In terms of what I'm working on now, I uh, just signed a contract to do a revision, uh, a second edition of my book, uh, Reaching and Teaching Students in Poverty, uh, Strategies for Erasing the Opportunity Gap. So that'll probably be out in another year. And then as soon as I'm done with that, I'm doing a new edition of uh, a book that I wrote with uh, Seema Pothini uh, called Case Studies on, uh, case Studies on Diversity and Social Justice Education, which are just a bunch of little case vignettes about actual things that have happened in classrooms and schools that help people examine uh, issues around equity and social justice.
1: That's great. We will get all those things posted on our show notes for, on our website. And uh, when those things come out, feel free to share them with our, our Visions of Education Twitter account, and we'll be happy to to share your work out. So thank you so much for joining us today. And, again, we hope to continue this discussion online and in other spaces.
0: And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes and Stitcher.
1: If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And you can find me. I'm on Twitter at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. And until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.